Welcome to the third of three interviews with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Managing Hyperglycemia in Inpatients, Ensuring Success. The interview series was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, Inc. This interview features Dr. Paul Zumita, who is Clinical Pharmacy Practice Manager and Director of the Critical Care Pharmacy Residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Carla Brink, Scientific Project Director with the ASHP Office of Professional Development, conducted the interview. Well, welcome, Paul. What's the best way to manage glucose in a patient who is critically ill? In generally speaking, I would say in critically ill patients, you want to use an IV infusion protocol. Not just any IV infusion protocol, however. I think folks should really, really evaluate their IV insulin protocols to make sure they're safe, effective, and validated to not only reach the goal that they're looking for, but limit the amount of hypoglycemia. A lot of the trials coming out on managing glucose in the ICU have really focused on hypoglycemia and the rates of hypoglycemia. We can't accept rates of hypoglycemia that are in these trials. Therefore, we're left with trying to manage our blood glucoses in a safe range. Going back to the question with the goal, your goal should be somewhere where you can get to it safe. How do you do it? You should do it with a safe protocol. This, unfortunately, takes a lot of local development. There's no how-to by ACE and ADA, for example, on how to actually do that. There are a few software protocol companies that you can implement software titration of IV insulin protocols, which I do support. My hospital doesn't doesn't have one at this time. But I do believe that they're all relatively created equal. There's about four or five different software protocols that you can use for this. So if you want a safe, simple way that's validated, you could use those software protocols. You could also use paper-based IV insulin protocols if they use the safe methodology and validating it within your institution and your patients. Well, does it matter if the patient was previously diagnosed with diabetes or not? More recently, we're starting to see more trials come out, observationally at this point, where the diagnosis of diabetes versus the the patients who do not have a diagnosis of diabetes have consistently shown a few things. One is that the patients with the diagnosis of diabetes probably will not benefit from tight glycemic control, and potentially those patients could be worse off with tight glycemic control, particularly in the 80 to 110 range. Interestingly, however, it's also shown that potentially patients without the previous diagnosis of diabetes, those patients may actually benefit from what we used to call strict or tight glycemic control of 80 to 110. For the most part, universally, we have abandoned tight glycemic control in the ICU population based off of heterogeneic studies. But now, when we start peeling away some of the heterogeneity, getting it more homogeneous, looking at patients just without the diagnosis of diabetes, Patients with stress-related hypoglycemia without the diagnosis of diabetes probably, at least observationally, have shown that 80 to 110 may be better for them. It's hard to say that now without a randomized controlled trial, but it's looking that way. These patients don't have the adaptation that the patients with diabetes have, so when the glucose gets high in those patients, it could be more toxic to them. So I think having maybe these... uh large randomized trial might be a way to get to the answer to that. I feel that uh, tight glycemic control is not a thing of the past. So, for example, what I would like to see for patients without the diagnosis of diabetes is a large randomized control trial looking at tight glycemic control versus a more moderate arm, trying to figure out 
if we can replicate the results of the observational trials that suggest these patients could have a mortality benefit from a tight glycemic control, which again has been, for the most part, been abandoned by most of our most of our ICUs. But I would stress that it has got to be with a safe, effective, and validated protocol with limit, limiting the, the amount of hypoglycemia. That certainly would be interesting to have that type of study. You know, it certainly sounds like there is not a cookie-cutter approach that can be used for all inpatients with hyperglycemia. For example, what about patients who aren't eating and instead are receiving uh, parenteral nutrition or enteral nutrition? There are several special populations of patients. One of those specifically would be the patients who are not eating discrete meals, patients, for example, who are TPN and are on enteral feeds. Within TPN, let's tackle that first. If you're a critically ill patient and you require TPN, I feel that your glucose should, for the short term, be managed by an IV insulin protocol. However, at some point, the patient transfer from being critically ill to more of a chronic. And if they're still on TPN, you can calculate the total daily dose and put that into the TPN bag slowly but surely. You can still correct the excursions of hypoglycemia with a sliding scale, having the patient's both basal and nutritional technically, in the TPN, and just covering the excursions with slide and scale. I do not recommend that early on in critical illness. I think that they should be separated in IV insulin protocol and TPN early on, but they can be combined moving forward. Enteral feeding is interesting. You can separate those patients into three different categories. One are patients who are getting continuous enteral feeds, which is most common, we also have, uh, in, particularly in surgical patients, we'll have cycle tube feeds. And third would be bolus tube feeds. These patients should be treated three distinct ways. The first is the general concept of the 50-50 bolus nutritional applies for the most part. However, when we have continuous tube feeds, our bodies are not used to continuous absorption of glucose. Therefore, this may, maybe the 50-50 split is more like 40% for the basal insulin, 60% for the nutritional insulin. So patients will get 40% of their total daily dose based on the, the basal insulin requirements and 60% based on the prandial insulin requirements. What we do at our institution for continuous tube feeds is a basal insulin. For the nutritional insulin, those patients will we'll use regular insulin standing Q6. At a, at a scheduled rate, in addition to a sliding scale. And obviously, need to make sure we titrate daily, depending on the outcomes of the glucose. For cycle tube feeds, typically people will be cycled for 12 hours. So what we'll typically do in those patients is give 40% basal insulin, and then give two shots of nutritional insulin, one at the beginning, and then, then one six hours into the, into the enteral cycle. So by the time the cycle is over, the insulin will have been off. The third type of nutrition, enteral nutrition is bolus. It's rare that patients will get bolus with enteral um, tube feeds. However, if they are getting bolus tube feeds, we can treat that sort of a meal and do the 50-50 and give patients nutritional insulin at the time of the bolus. Well, what are some of the other patient groups that need special consideration? There are several types of patients that need consideration. I'll name a few. Patients that are pregnant, Patients with DKA and HHS, patients that are on uh, that have hospital-related uh, hyperglycemia secondary to steroids, patients who are NPO, patients who require exceedingly high doses of insulin to the point where they are actually chronically at home on insulin U500, 
patients on insulin pumps, patients with pre-procedural or pre-surgical needs, peri-procedure and surgical needs, post-procedure and surgical needs, in combination with patients who manage their own diabetes, typically patients with type 1 personalities, and they handle their diabetes exceptionally well, probably much better than us as healthcare professionals can. So those are the main types of special cases that we deal with on a daily basis at our hospital. That's quite a list. Do you have protocols for maybe not all of these situations, but for a good number of them? We actually have policies, procedures, and protocols for each one of those special cases. You know, when we first started rolling out our diabetes protocols and guidelines at our hospital, I naively thought you know, we'll roll out you know, an ICU protocol and we'll roll out a non-ICU protocol and we'll be done with our jobs in a, you know, six to eight months. That has proven not to be true and now have protocols for each one of these types of individual types of patients. And they're very hard. And as guidelines get rolled out, that's when they start getting old. And so people want to re- revisit ideas and concepts and goals. So we constantly do that once a month at our hospital. Well, good. Paul, you're obviously very passionate about this whole topic of management of hyperglycemia within the hospitalized patient group. How did you get into this? Carl, it's, it's, it's relatively simple. I was a, a critical care pharmacist, and uh, when Dr. Vandenberg's trial came out in 01, uh, I saw that there was some interesting results there, that there was some flaws in it, but that you clearly saw some outcome data. And then I start looking at my patients and how I'm practicing and how we're managing these patients. And we didn't have an IV insulin protocol in our ICU. And I was interested in rolling out or getting involved in controlling glucose, maybe not even through an IV insulin protocol. I was maybe naive enough to think we could do it subcutaneously in the ICU. I didn't know. And so as a young, naive, certainly not a master of this, more of a jack-of-all-trades honed in a little bit on the glucose, and then was given the opportunity to be part of our diabetes subcommittee. And I've had a career change ever since then with involvement in that diabetes subcommittee to the point where now I'm actually the co-chair of the diabetes subcommittee and involvement in all these types of, of, of these cases. So it really started with one trial and then reevaluating how we're doing it with our individual patients. Well, and that certainly sounds like something that other pharmacists can do the same and are doing. It just it takes a little bit of uh, a little bit of passion for a topic, and then the sky's the limit with uh, what you can do. Well, thank you very much, Paul. I enjoyed talking with you today. I enjoyed talking to you as well, Carla. Thank you. You're welcome. This concludes the third and last interview in this series. A web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in mid-February 2014. To access this activity and other educational opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash hyperglycemia.